Good morning. As I mentioned, we're going to start with the Gospel of John today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John chapter 1. My goal is to preach through the whole Gospel of John before I die. That's a joke. I'm not going to do it exactly verse by verse because then I literally would die before I finished the entire book of the Gospel of John. But we're going to be here for a few months. Let me start by reading this first five verses. And this morning I just want to do just some basic background introduction to the Gospel of John, what it is, what happens. Many of you are familiar with a lot of the aspects of the Gospel of John, and so I'm not going to belabor points that most of you probably already know, but uh, there are just a few things as sort of background pieces of information I want to make sure we're all on the all understanding work with, and then just walk through these first five verses this morning. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So let's pray before we start looking deeper into the word. Father, thank you for your mercies. Thank you for the joy and the glory of singing your victory over death and darkness. Thank you for the gift of men and women through the ages who have known the darkness surrounding them and have tasted the sweetness of your deliverance. And then can then share that with us through the word of song in lyrics and music so that we may proclaim your glory through their victory over death and darkness. Thank you, Father, for loving us to bring us from darkness into light, to show us your glory and to know you as our light and our hope. Thank you, Father, for just everything that you do on an everyday basis, some things we recognize, others that we don't, so that we may have life and live it to the fullest. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at the Gospel of John, it uh, naturally raises some questions. Things like, well, which John is this? There's a bunch of Johns in the New Testament. Which John is this? Well, this John, the one that writes the Gospel of John, is the John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, the one of the two sons of thunder described in the other Gospels. The phrase that he uses to describe himself is the disciple that Jesus loved. In fact, one of the things that's been kind of controversial about ascribing and determining that the apostle John, the son of Zebedee, was the author of this book, is he never actually uses his own personal name throughout the entire Gospel. He never once says, John. If he's describing himself, the author says, the disciple that Jesus loved. But he'll use all the other apostles' names. So the conclusion becomes, well, 
if he's the only apostle not ever named, and the author of this book describes himself by the phrase, the one Jesus loved, then it has to be the Apostle John, if he's never mentioned once in the gospel itself. But then we also have evidence from the early church history, the end of the very first century, into the second century, even up into the third and the fourth century, all the early church fathers ascribed and said that the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, was the author of this gospel. And no one really questioned the authorship of being John anyone else in the early church. And part of that also comes from the reality that this book was written by the Apostle John at the end of the very first century, around 90 AD. And John was in the city of Ephesus when he wrote this book. Now, I said around probably around 90 AD, but there's a lot of, some say it was 85 before he even went to the island of Patmos for his exile, where he then wrote the book of Revelation. Others say, no, it was much later. It's difficult to say with any kind of level of certainty other than at the end of the day, you have to kind of pick, right? You look at the evidence and you make a decision. And when I look at everything in a, earlier than before he went to the island of Patmos just doesn't fit right. It doesn't make sense to me. So I subscribe to the view that he wrote this probably in Ephesus after he leaves Patmos, after he's experienced the revelation of John. Perhaps he writes the Gospel of John first, then he writes Revelation. Maybe it's the other way around. But irrespective of which one came first, the Revelation of John, the Gospel of John, the three letters from John were all written really, 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 really close together. Possibly within months, but uh, certainly within less than a decade of each other. And most likely just within a couple of years of each other. Which is kind of stunning when you think about the big picture. You think about everything in the Gospel of John, everything in the first three epistles, and then everything in the book of Revelation. And he did all of that in just a short span of months, maybe years. That's just really kind of stunning. Oh, and by the way, John was really, really old. Older than anybody in this room. Old. Again, some speculation, depending on the date when he writes it. Uh, Got to think for a second to get this sequence right. Polycarp, who was a disciple of Irenaeus, who was a personal disciple of John the Apostle in Ephesus, says, Polycarp says that Irenaeus told him that during the end of John's life in Ephesus, oh, and by the way, John the Apostle dies in Ephesus, he actually had to have people physically pick him up and carry him from his home to the church meetings themselves in Ephesus. He had gotten his, by the end, his health had declined that much that he couldn't even physically walk on his own. And yet they would carry him and he would go there. And Polycarp also wrote that Irenaeus tells him that they would ask the Apostle John, right? The Apostle John is sitting in your church pews. Peter is dead. Paul is dead. All the other apostles are dead. 
And it is possible that at this moment, John is the only eyewitness to Jesus still alive on the earth. So John the Apostle, the only one left is alive, is sitting in your pews. But what are you going to do each Sunday? You're going to ask the Apostle John, do you have anything you want to say? And the Apostle John said the exact same phrase every Sunday. Week after week, months after months. Even when they would pick up his broken body and carry it with multiple men carrying him by hand to the church in Ephesus, he would still say this same thing. Love one another. That's all he would say. And he would say it each week. And finally, at one point, someone said, John, why, why do you always say the same thing each week? Because the Lord commanded it. And to do it is enough. Well, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I could almost feel the weight of that phrase, imagining myself standing in the church in Ephesus and hearing John every Sunday say, love one another in his old, feeble, broken voice. Come back the next week. Oh, love one another. Oh, man. Before anybody stands up in the church service, you know what's going to happen. They're going to turn to John and ask him, do you have anything you want to say to the church? And you know John's going to say, love one another. Like, oh, is this ever going to end? Why do we keep asking him each week if he has anything to say? Well, because he's the Apostle John and he actually has personal conversations with Jesus. That's why we keep asking. But instead of sharing with us what Jesus tells him, he just says, love one another. But really, John, can't you give me the good stuff? Right? Imagining being there every week, going through that experience, and the frustration of, oh, here we go again. And then someone, obviously we're not a very bright bunch, because he does this every week, and no one bothers to say, you say that every week, is there a reason you don't say anything different? than that every week? And then he responds with that wisdom that can only come from above. The kind of wisdom that cuts to the heart without a sharp word. It is what the Lord has commanded and to do it is enough. Ouch. I can feel that. Even though I wasn't there, I could feel that when I read it. And it was with that same wisdom that we then look at this gospel that he's written. He writes it with a very clear purpose. He tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, the entire purpose for writing out the gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John twenty thirty one. The other thing that's different about John's gospel is he doesn't focus on the historical timeline like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're, they're giving a biography of Jesus that starts with his birth and ends with his death and is mostly sequential of the events as they occurred in the course of history and time during his life. John's focus 
is to emphasize and highlight different themes that Jesus has or that he brought out. And as you read the Gospel of John, you should look for repeated words and phrases or ideas. In fact, this week I want to encourage you to read the entire Gospel of John from start to finish. Start with chapter 1, verse 1, and read all the way through to the end of John, chapter 21-something. I can tell you it starts at 1-1, but I don't remember the exact ending spot. Now, I did that this week, right? I don't ask you to do something that I haven't done or I'm not willing to do. I read the entire Gospel of John this week. It took me an hour and ten minutes. Now, I didn't read nonstop for an hour and ten minutes. I broke it up over a couple of days in like three sections. I think maybe three or four readings. Read roughly 30, 40 minutes at a time to get all the way through. So it's okay to break it up. But when you do, I want you to read as big of a chunk at one time as you possibly can. Because the goal at reading the whole thing in a relatively short period of time is to begin to see and pick out things that are repeated that are more difficult to catch when you have long periods of time in between reading the gospel. Now, I know that some of you struggle with reading. You hear that I read it in an hour and ten minutes, and you go, you're not human. I can promise you by the end of this week, I was very human. And that's okay. If you struggle with reading, just listen to it. Just get, you know, look, most of the, almost, there are so many Bible websites that will actually read the word to you. There's several Bible apps you can put on your phone that will actually read the Bible to you. Just listen to it. And also, in addition, if you're a good reader and you're able to read the Gospel of John fairly quickly, then I encourage you to turn around and listen to it. Let someone else read it to you. It's shocking, stunning even, the difference. When what I hear when I read a passage of the Scripture versus what I hear when someone reads that exact same passage to me. Whether it's one of you or a professional that's recorded the entire Bible. So try this week to just read through the whole gospel. It'll be a stunning... I I fully expect that each of you will go, wow, that was amazing. And if it doesn't happen to you, I'm sorry. But I really, honestly, I seriously do expect every one of you to go, wow, that was amazing if you're able to do it. So I only really want to make just two points from this paragraph. Just two truths for us to remember. That's all I want from this first five verses. The two things I want you to grasp, the two things I want you to remember, to walk away with today from this paragraph are Jesus is God and evil cannot overcome Jesus. That's all. I know that seems very simplistic. Like, really? You invested time and energy for a sermon to tell us that. Yeah, I did. Let's see if I did a good thing or not. Let's start with Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that's a lot of Word. And in, and in your Scripture, in your Bibles, when you look, you'll notice that the Word, Word, that's awkward. English is uncomfortable at times. The Word, Word, starts with a capitalized W, indicating clearly that this is a title. 
But even before we get to the word word in that first phrase, there's a prephrase that even begins to tell us, wait a minute, there's something extra special here about what John's telling us. Because he starts with, in the beginning. Where have I heard that phrase before? Genesis chapter 1. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And yes, I'm going to read you the whole chapter 1 of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed in fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night and separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And then God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which was the waters swarm according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill in the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply upon the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then chapter 2 of Genesis starts out with the seventh day where God rests. And so we see here John repeating the same thematic idea in just this first couple of verses that were present in the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning of creation. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word is one of John's way of referring to Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's very specific here. And as it turns out, his wisdom is shown down through the ages by being so particular and specific right in this phrase. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It only took 315 years for the lie that came up that Jesus wasn't really God, but that he was a created being like everyone else. And it only took 315 years to get there. You went from Jesus is God to, well, maybe he's a God. I'm not so sure in 300 years. I'm talking about the great controversy that was one of the first great controversies of the early church with the Council of Nicaea. Constantine had conquered and become the king, or the ruler of Caesar. No, what word am I looking for, Tom? What word am I looking for, Tom? Constantine had... Yeah, yeah, he was, he was in Constantinople, but he was the emperor. Yes, thank you, the emperor of Rome. He had won that role, had ushered in a period of joy for the church as one who was going to put an end to the persecution of Christianity and make it, in essence, the state religion. And then this little unpleasant person pops up from the eastern side of the church named Arius. And he starts, he gets this crazy idea in his head that, well, Jesus isn't really God. He's a created being like the rest of us, except he was the first created being of the universe. And then as the first created being, he was endowed with special powers by God so that he could then create everything else became known as that thought process, that belief system, that theory, described as Arianism. And it survives today even in the midst, in the middle as a, as a core tenet belief of other religions, sometimes identified as Christian. Although it's been completely rejected, not just in 315 AD at the Council of Nicaea, but also throughout the entire history of the church when it rears its ugly head. 
And it was Athanasius, the bishop, who eventually became the bishop of Alexandria. At that time, he was the assistant to the bishop of Alexandria, who was the one that recognized what Arius was really saying. Because like most heresy, they made it sound really nice, and they didn't use words the same way everybody else was using those words, but they didn't bother to tell anybody they're using the words differently. And as a result, everybody's thinking, oh, well, that sounds okay. And it was Athanasius and his boss, the Bishop of Alexandria, that recognized the problem here. They were the ones that sent up the red flag and called and said, this is not just wrong, it's a really big wrong, and we cannot just sort of let it go. And Arius and the rest of the church is called to the Council of Nicaea, where even Constantine himself sat and listened to the arguments. He listened to Arius present his view, and then he listened to those who refuted it. And Arius was slippery slick with his words, so that even Constantine didn't really catch it. But Athanasius knew how to box him in. He just kept, he just kept questioning. He kept slicing and dicing the phrases and the words that he used until he had nailed Jello to the wall. And he said, well, no, Jesus is not God. And everything, you want to talk about a room full of theologians and important people going ballistic? It was unbelievable. Constantine even had a conniption fit when Athanasius finally nailed Arius to the wall about what he really means by this. In fact, it was so devastating of a admission that Arius and his, they, the Council of Nicaea wrote the Nicene Creed, which affirms Jesus as God. And Arius and his friends who were advocating for his idea that Jesus was a created being and not God, they even signed Nicene Creed. They even signed it as something they believed. And then they bribed the uh, guy in charge of protecting the documents and they went in and crossed their names off afterwards. That's the kind of, this is the kind of people you're dealing with. Once they've finally been caught, they'll just, oh yeah, yeah you know what? We're wrong. We believe that too. Because they knew that Constantine was going to put them to death. He wasn't going to put up with this. But then they signed the document saying, yes, I believe this, and then bribed somebody to go in and strike their names off so that they don't actually, really, have signed it. Sorry. This is how big this question is. Is Jesus God? Is he God? Yes or no? And that's not just the question that Athanasius had to nail Arius to the wall with. It's the question each of us have to nail our hearts to the wall with. Is Jesus God? Yes or no? The evidence of Scripture is overwhelming. John clearly, unambiguously, well, unambiguously to people who are reading this for the first time, says that Jesus is God. And that he was the one with God in the beginning, creating and making everything that was made. All things were made through him, verse 3. And without him was not anything made that was made. Well, that seems kind of an awkward way to say that. Why are you saying it that way? 
Because guess what happened in about 50 years after the Council of Nicaea? Another council had to meet because somebody said the Holy Spirit isn't God. The Holy Spirit is a created being too. And by John saying it this way, and without him was not anything made that was made. You have the phrasing of the idea in such a way that the Holy Spirit can exist and still be God. Because the Holy Spirit wasn't made. And okay, okay, fine. I mean, I know I've hammered on this early church history, but this just comes up over and over and over. It wasn't just in 300 in the fourth century that this happened. It comes up again throughout church history. And like I said, even today, this still is a battle that has to be fought. So God's saying, you know, he just says this word is God. And he doesn't mean, I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch that he's talking about Jesus. Okay, fine. Let's turn to John chapter 8. Verses 56 through 59. Jesus is having a confrontation with the Pharisees again. He's already talked to them about their father, the devil. Then they get into this argument about Abraham being their father. And we come to verse 56. Jesus says to the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. Abraham saw Jesus' day and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I am, that is the phrase, that is the word God used to describe himself when Moses asked God at the burning bush, what is your name? Exodus chapter 4. I am who I am. When a Jew says, I am, he is talking about the God, the Lord, who can be no other but the one true and living God who was and is and is to come. And Jesus says, I am, I am. That's what he says. He claims to be God right there. No ifs and ands and buts. No way to get around it. He's either a liar, lord, or lunatic. One of the three. Then we have Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is where Arius got his crazy idea. For by him all things were created in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything might be, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is God and he makes peace by the blood of his cross, the blood of God. He's the image of the firstborn. 
the invisible God. Oh, by the way, there's just a few other places we should take a look at on this subject of Jesus is God. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. You say, you're spending a lot of time on this, Brian. Yeah, that's right, because this lie never dies. That's why I'm spending so much time on it. Revelation 1, 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, God's speaking to John here at the beginning of Revelation. He even says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Okay, fine. What's your point? Now go to Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Okay, so he says it again. What's the problem? It is Jesus talking in chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. You can sort of go, okay, well, this is God the Father in verse 8 of chapter 1. But by the time you get to 22, verse 12 and 13, this is Jesus talking now. Jesus is standing in front of John saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Okay, so I'll tell you the so. Go to Isaiah chapter 48. I have all these scriptures in the outline. These are verses you're going to want to remember when you run into these groups that deny Jesus is God. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel before they go into exile. And saying, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Now in Hebrew, it's just, I am the first, and I am the last. But if you try to say that in Greek, you're going to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's why it sounds different in the book of Revelation than it does in Isaiah. But it's the same thing. It means the same thing. God describes himself as the first and the last. And Jesus describes himself as the first and the last. Make no mistakes. Be crystal clear. Crystal clear. Jesus, we just don't ascribe that Jesus is God to him. He says it himself. I am God. And at the expense of just completely beating a dead horse, look at Revelation chapter 19. Verses 11 and 16, right? Well, if you're God, show me something. Show me something that says you are actually God instead of you just claiming, right? Because in this morning in the Bible study time, we even dealt with this subject of a person who says I'm God when he's not. So if you say you're God, show it to me. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and on he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
The same phrase John uses to introduce Jesus in the beginning of John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the top dude. This description is describing the top dude in all the universe. Nobody has authority over him. He is God. Jesus is God. Never forget it. And never let some slick-talking liar convince you that it's otherwise true. Because the truth is not in them. And they tell you Jesus is a God, they're liars and the truth isn't in them. They're of their father, the devil. And then the last verse, I know I'm already over time, I'm sorry. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Evil cannot overcome Jesus. Look, death could not hold him. I don't know if you've noticed, but everybody that we meet and then death holds them in the grave, they still there. They still dead. Jesus is the only person who escapes death. Jesus is the only one that death cannot hold him. What about Lazarus? Lazarus is dead. He's still in the grave. He came out of the grave just to go back into it a few years later. Everybody that Jesus raised from the dead, they still died later and they still dead. Death still got a hold on them. But Jesus ain't dead. Jesus is alive. Look at John chapter 20. Verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus has already risen from the grave. He's seen Mary Magdalene there at the tomb. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And he said this too. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Death could not hold him. It doesn't today and it never will. And one day, unless Jesus returns, I'll be in the grave too. But death, its hold is only going to be temporary on me too. Because he will resurrect and bring his own back to him and have the complete and final triumph over death for all of us. But not only does death not have a hold on him as a sign that evil can't overcome Jesus, Jesus completely triumphs over evil. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Oh, that's not the right place. Let's just jump to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, 
the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And here's the key to show that evil cannot triumph over Jesus. And night will be no more. They will be no need for light of a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Darkness doesn't exist anymore. Not only is Jesus' triumph over evil complete, he eradicates its existence. It's one thing to win and defeat your enemy. It's a totally different thing to defeat your enemy and eradicate their existence. There will be no need for light of a lamp or the sun. For there are, the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Darkness never enters the new heaven and the new earth. Think about that. We're just weeks away from the time change. Weeks away from the winter solstice where it starts getting dark at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. is a long time of darkness. It'll never exist in the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus comes back and finishes his work that he started here on the cross, when he finishes that, there'll never ever be darkness ever again. Now that's in the physical world. But even here in, in our spiritual world, we can experience this triumph over evil and the darkness being defeated. So I just have four things there written for you is, so what? Right? This has been fantastic. Proving that Jesus is God, seeing how he overcomes evil. Thank you very much for your insightfulness, Brian. So what? I have four things that matter. Four so what's that really matter. There are those who say Jesus is a God with a lowercase g and an a in front of it. Like there is a thing as a Ford Bronco and a Chevy Impala. So there is also Jesus is a God. But he's just something less than fully God. Let's just be clear about this, my friend. He's less than fully God. That's what they're going to say. You're going to meet them and they're going to be slick with their words. If you don't realize who you're dealing with, you'll fall prey to their lie. Know this, they are liars and the truth is not in them. Know that Jesus is fully God, equal with the Father in essence and substance. That was the heart of the Nicene Creed. He is fully God, equal to God the Father in essence and substance. He is God. And when they challenge you or when they use their slick words, you go right to those script passages that I gave you in the outline. Revelation and Isaiah. They have no refutation for it. The second thing. 
We all understand dark times. It, in, it even feels like we're living in a dark time in our society and culture. But even in the darkest of times, in the darkest of church history, in the darkest of the early New Testament church, darkness has never overcome Jesus. In dark times, know that Jesus overcomes the darkness. It's one thing to know that the darkness can't overcome him. But it's a totally separate thing to recognize that he overcomes the darkness. And we live in a world where darkness exists and it just is around us. And at times it feels like it's all around us with no way to escape it. And it is true that at times darkness overtakes good and evil prevails. Period. There is no explanation for the Holocaust from World War II perpetrated by the Nazis without acknowledging that at times darkness overtakes good and evil succeeds. However, even in the case of the Holocaust, the victory of evil is just temporary because evil cannot overcome Jesus. Well, okay, thank you very much. Appreciate that encouraging incitement about world and cultural history and future events. But I've had a pretty crappy week, Brian. Thank you very much. This one's number three is the most important. When the darkness swallows you in your heart and soul and mind, Cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Just like Peter did in Matthew chapter 14, verse 30. Peter's walking on the water. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He sinks into the sea of Galilee with the waves and the darkness. It's a dark, dark night. Don't think this is like swimming in a pool on a sunny afternoon. It's late at night. It's dark. It's a storm. It's, there is no light anywhere on the sea of Galilee. In this moment. And Peter starts sinking into the water. And the water starts coming up to his neck. And his chin. And he realizes I'm going under. We all know what that feels like. I'm going under the water. And he cries out. Jesus save me. Lord save me. I know that feeling of darkness. The feeling of darkness. Just completely engulfing. My whole personhood. The despair and the lies of the enemy that go from whispers in my ear to screams and loud yelling in my mind. The coldness that you feel in your heart so deep that you can start to feel it in your body. I know that feeling. The kind that pushes you to the ultimate act of hopelessness. When the darkness is that dark, that fully engulfing you, you only need to do what Peter did. Cry out to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Cry out with every last ounce of life you have in you, if necessary. Cry out, Lord, save me. And when you do, don't be surprised if the light that penetrates the darkness comes as the word of life, speaking hope and light. To your darkest moment. Because he is our hope.
And the last one, absorb the light of the world. Absorb it all the way into your heart, soul, and mind. And then give that same light of the world to the world around you. Remember, what is one of the commands our Lord and Savior has given to us? Our Father in heaven to be conformed into the image of Christ. I believe I have reached the conclusion through my studies of His Word and what it means to be conformed to His image and to be in the likeness of Jesus that part of us imaging Christ is to overcome the darkness and not let the darkness overcome us, but to overcome it. That is my plea to you this morning. Overcome the darkness with the light of Jesus living and shining in your own heart, mind, and soul, and body. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for you, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, being God. Thank you that we can put our trust in you in the darkest moments of our lives, knowing that you are God and there ain't no darkness that can overcome you and that you will not let it overcome us, but that you will deliver us as you have promised from darkness into light. And I pray, Father, that each and every one of us, that every person in this room, every person who hears these words, from our website that I myself will believe in your overcoming darkness and delivering us, delivering me from darkness even to the ultimate moment of deliverance when I cross the threshold of this life into eternity and am delivered from the darkness of physical death into the light of eternity with you. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.